0: Isaiah's
1: Song of the Vineyard can be found in your Pew Bible, page 569. I do encourage you to turn there. We're going to be looking at at least one verse more than we had read this morning. There's a lot more that's there in Isaiah chapter 5, but the heart of the chapter is this Song of the Vineyard, which you did hear read a moment ago. For those who study Isaiah, this is kind of a famous section of Isaiah. It's, It's hard to miss it. It doesn't read like a lot of the rest of the book does. It's very clearly a kind of story or parable with a deeper meaning than what's on the surface. And uh, if you know your Bible well, you might even hear the overtones of our Lord Jesus parable of the tenants or the parable of the vineyard. Uh, Do you remember this? This is when he talks about how there was a man who had a vineyard and he lent it to some servants, to some stewards, and then he went away into a far country and he sent back at the time of, of harvest and said, give me some of the produce of my vineyard. And they beat the guy who he sent and they threw him out and he sent another guy. And they beat that guy and threw him out too. And so he said, well, I'll send my son. And then when his son arrives, they say, if we kill him, we can keep it all. And that's what they do. They kill him, they keep it all. And of course, this is clearly a prophecy of his own death at the hands of the very Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, scribes, and others who he was talking to, telling this parable against. But it doesn't end there either. After they kill the son and throw him out, he says, what will the master do? And he says, the answer is he will come and he will slaughter those wicked tenants. And the Pharisees who know this is about them say, surely not. But after Jesus had risen from the dead, he has risen. Hallelujah! after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to begin the sending of the good news of his salvation to the nations. Decades passed, but not more decades than one generation. And by the end of that generation, the prophecies he gave in Matthew 24 and 25, and I believe Luke 17, that not one stone will be left upon the mount of the temple that the vineyard would be taken away from those who held it. Well, that happened at the hands of the Roman government who were tired of putting up with Jewish rebellions, and that's kind of an old thing for them. They were done with it once and for all, and they stormed the temple. They tore it down entirely into this day. It is not there. Now, that itself has a lot to do with Isaiah chapter 5. It's not a completely different scenario. Because Isaiah is living and speaking during the reigns of, do you remember, Uzziah, but barely. Uzziah dies right away after, after Isaiah's call. And then Jotham, his son, who is kind of a quiet king who reigns for about 15 years, a little bit in the background. And then Ahaz, Ahaz who's quite wicked and who brings about all manner of idolatry at the same time that God is going to destroy the northern kingdom. Remember, there are two kingdoms, south and north. The northern kingdom is about to be done. Assyria, the great nation of Nineveh from the north, is going to come down and sweep them all away. And this doesn't quite happen during Ahaz's lifetime. It almost happens during Ahaz's lifetime. It happens right after his death as his son Hezekiah has taken the throne. And so Isaiah, again, is preaching at a time in which Assyria is going to sweep away the north and then come tromping right down through Judah, taking away many of their cities up to the gates of Jerusalem. And then the story of Hezekiah's repentance kind of starts there. Uh, That repentance doesn't stop the prophecy that the temple will be torn down for the wicked idolatry of Jerusalem which Isaiah is all about. He says this again and again. That Hezekiah's repentance doesn't stop it. It just delays it. It just puts it off a couple generations. But even as far back as the book of Deuteronomy, when they're at Mount Sinai, God is saying to them, okay, so just so you know, you're going to rebel against me and I'm going to destroy you later. You don't have to do it in your generation, but it's going to happen eventually, just so you know. And all of that uh, kind of brings us to a point where we wanna, we wanna see how this applies to us as Christians today, okay? There's, there's a couple layers here that are really, really important. First off, yes, this is historically what happened. The, the Jews were made God's people. They did not stay God's people. They rejected their king, both in the ancient time and then when Jesus, their king, was there in the flesh. But this picture, is a picture of all mankind's history. And you can apply it, in one sense, to every human being's life. But the Word of God comes to you in order to regenerate you, and if and when you reject that Word, it's only unto your own final judgment. And if you do, do believe that Word by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, it is quite possible for you to later grow lukewarm and reject that Word and again be cast into outer darkness. This, which is true about you personally, is also true about your family. That one generation might be faithful and the next generation might entirely walk away from the faith, rejecting the word. That's why there are so many exhortations to spend time with your children, talking to them along the way about what the Bible says. Not giving more credence to the things of this world than you give to what the lore of the Bible is. So this does apply to families as well. And then from families, of course, it's going to apply to cities. Ordinations, countries, states, whatever you want to put into the political sphere. If a group of people are Christian, they can expect their prayers as a people to be answered. And when and if that group of people decide, enough of that, we're done with this God. We're going to reject everything he said in his word. And we're going to do and say whatever we want. Well, then they can only expect an eventual collapse, an eventual ruin. And eventual destruction at the hand of God as his protecting hand is removed. So it, it applies there as well. And then it applies to the church that a congregation of Christian people can become apostate. And it it's possible for you all to get together and say, this is church and we love Jesus, but to actually be worshiping a golden cow that none of you can see. But anybody else who comes in as a Christian knowing their scriptures are going to say, hey, look, they all care about that golden cow a lot more than they care about what Jesus actually said. Now, all of those layers are true reflections of the issue of Jerusalem rejecting God and receiving his wrath. And we should, we should apply it on different levels to all of that. But there's one other picture that's really, really important, especially as we look at the vineyard. And we're about to go verse by verse through the vineyard here. One of the that's very important is the big picture. And you might think that the application to your your church or your church body is the big picture, although probably not. You're probably more likely to want to know how this applies to the United States of America right now, right? Because that's the big picture that really matters to most of our minds every day, is where is our country going, right? But that's not the big picture at all. The big picture is the planet. The planet. That there was this place made by God, which was with God in perfection and that it has ceased to be with god in perfection by its own choice that there was a paradise here on this planet. And we, in our forefathers, but it's not like we get off the hook. We, in our forefathers, chose to leave that place. Chose to leave the right hand of God. Chose to worship this creation rather than the creator. And so what will God do to his vineyard from which he expected good fruits, but which now you see only wicked fruits? Well, he will destroy that vineyard. And this is the story of Christianity, yes? That we have fallen from our perfection in paradise into a valley of the shadow of death that is walking directly toward the fires of an abominable hell. And God has no intention of ever relenting on that reality. He's going to see it through. But that doesn't mean that you have to go there It doesn't mean that your generation can't repent and believe in that that miraculous ship that's going to sail through the flood. And while death rages all around, it's going to come through on the other side, land on the holy mountain, and plant a vineyard. (laughs) That's what Noah actually does. yeah. And then that ship, that ark that goes through the chaos of death, that is the body of Jesus. He is where God is, right? And so all this story on every level is there to get you personally, you, your family, you, your congregation, you, your nation, to know this. And so to attend to his word with great heed, believing that in it you have the path and the words of life. So with that then, as the introduction, let's, let's look through Isaiah chapter 5, just the section on the vineyard and then those two other verses that we saw before. It starts out, he says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. And there's some question here, who's his beloved? Who's speaking here? And it's Isaiah singing for God, what God has told Isaiah to sing. Right? That's the shorthand. But there's something that you kind of can't see in the English, and it's there in the in the Hebrew, which is neat. Uh, the word beloved, that's the word David. It's the word David. David means beloved, right? So let me sing for my David, my, my David song concerning his vineyard. My David had a vineyard. And in this, at least you got to see what Isaiah is doing. He is very much saying, I'm talking about Jerusalem. I'm talking about Judah. I'm talking about the throne. I'm talking about the old covenant that was believed on by David and enhanced so that that throne will never perish. That's the promise. The throne will never perish. It will never go away. There will always be a son to sit on the throne of David. Let me sing a song about that, he says. Yeah, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So the idea here is you've got this great stretch of land. It's not a mountain. It's not full of crags, but it's, it's a little bit elevated. You can maybe terrace it just a touch, right? And, and it's, it's, it's lifted up so you can see it from afar and it's fertile. The land is good. The soil is good. And he dug it, verse two, and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. So this isn't kind of a casual thing. Uh, This is a lot of work. This is good farming technique. He he has put in the effort to bring forth produce which is good. And, And again, you can see this in what God did to create paradise in the first place. You can see this in what God has done in Jesus to make the church holy and righteous and good through salvation. You can see this in your family. And how God has made you and them to have been those who survived through this raging history. That your ancestors didn't just give up and die and roll over, but provided for their children forward and forward. And now you're here. Not all peoples have had that happen. I mean, the ones who haven't aren't here, but you are. And then again, this is this is what he has done for you. As by toil and bloody sweat, he died for you on the cross. Yeah? So here are all those layers in this of what God has done for his vineyard, digging it, clearing it of stones. He builds a watchtower. Right? He's going to defend this place. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. He's expecting fruit. He thinks good is coming. And he looked for it to yield grapes. I mean, that's what you get out of a vineyard. You get the grapes You peel off the skin. You know this? This is how you get the white wine. You peel the skin off. You put them in the vat. You stomp on the vat. The juice runs out. It's mostly grape juice at that point, but you let it sit for a while. Now you got the good vintage wine. Yeah, that's what he's looking for. But it yielded, now the English says wild grapes, and that is kind of literally what the Hebrew says. But I don't know. Have you ever walked by a wild grapevine and taken a bite? I don't recommend it. Uh, They're not tasty. Uh, They're they're sour. Uh, And so for our English kind of way of talking, he looked for good grapes. He found sour grapes. That's what he found. And after all of the work he did of splicing the vine and working with the soil, I mean, it, when you do that work to make a vineyard, you don't expect sour grapes. In fact, it's it's almost impossible if you do the work right. It's very difficult to, to do good farming and get bad result, you know, weather withstanding. But the point here is the weather was fine. Everything was done to bring forth good grapes, and instead it brings forth sour grapes. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. He's asking. So was that fair? Was the fall out of paradise fair to God? Huh? No. <laughs> yeah. It is the way that we Christians as we are respond in, in meager half-heartedness to the truths of God's word? Is that fair to God? No. No, no, it's not. Uh, Is the way that any country which has found strength and power, money and prosperity, the way that it uses that for itself to oppress and push down those who are weak and heavy laden, is that fair to God? No. No, no, And that's what he wants you to see. He wants you to make that judgment. No, this ain't fair at all. This is actually bad. This is bad. And he asked the question, so what was I supposed to do? Right. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And on that level, again, for the sake of our current scenario, whatever layer you want to look at, what more can God do than send his son into the midst of that vineyard to die at the hands of the wicked tenants and that as salvation? What more can he do? Nothing. It's done. He said it. It's finished. huh? But now, see again, then, what does not see that, what does not believe that, has only damnation coming. And that is very much a refraction of of what's going on here. For those who in Judah at this time could not see that God was sitting in the temple, willing to send armies of angels to destroy their enemies, if only they would ask. Well, if they won't ask, then what's going to happen? They're going to be destroyed. And again, that's where. This story is going so that we'll see that big picture of paradise, fall, restoration in Jesus, but hell still coming for those who aren't inside the ark. Yeah. Why did I look for it to yield grapes and yet why did it yield only wild grapes again? What's the cause? Now, where is the evil coming from? And and we're not going to go off and do a dogmatic treatise on, on where sin comes from, but the answer here is it wasn't God. God did not plan sin. It's something we have done. And so He is truly just in what He says here. Verse 5 I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. Right? So a hedge like a, a, a bush of thorns around the vineyard to keep other animals out from eating the fruit. I'm gonna take that away. I'm gonna stop protecting it. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. So there was a hedge and a wall, and take that away. I will make it a waste. I'm going to let it be absolutely destroyed. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. What happens with the curse of Adam? As soon as God finds that he has rebelled against him and eaten of the tree, which he should not eat, what is the curse? That from the ground will come thorns. Yeah, so, See the overlap here. What has God done because of the sin of mankind? He has stopped saving us from everything. And people see something bad happen. They go, why did God let this happen to me? Really? Why did God let it happen to you? You know, you're not burning in hell yet. So if he lets a little bit of thorn and briar come your way, uh, maybe he let it happen to you because you deserved it. Isn't it funny how we always assume we don't deserve it? I mean, doesn't that tell you something about us? What we are, we assume it's his fault. How could God do this to me? Really? Have you been praying daily that he would not? No, I was just kind of going along living my life. Well, there's a line from a rapper. (laughs) Uh, uh, I can't even think of his name now. My kids like him. He's a Christian rapper. He's like, it's hard to answer prayers when no one's praying to you. That's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. There you see, this is a divine wrath not just man doing this. It's a divine wrath. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He clarifies the parable for you. He lets you know who he's talking about. Jerusalem and the men of Judah on the next page. They are his pleasant planting. So again, he's very directly speaking to the southern kingdom. Under the reign of Jotham and Uzziah and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And he says that you've ceased to be. What you were supposed to be and remember during jotham and uzziah's reign things are good they got money they got power they got the temple sacrifices going on but they also have the high places they also are worshiping foreign gods at these various other locations they're mixed in their affinity yeah and under Ahaz, well, he brings that stuff in even more. And then rather than look to God for help with his trouble, rather than pray to Jesus for what he needs, he turns to the king of Assyria, who will eventually become the very one who tramples down the wall and, and all this kind of stuff that happens. Now, the rest of verse 7 is, is fairly important, though, for the, the kind of the, not the narrow picture, but what is really wrong? Okay, so what's really the sin? Where do you find the sin? And he has this this poem again uh, that he looked for justice but found bloodshed, that he looked for righteousness but found an outcry. And there's something going on in the Hebrew here that that is poetic. I I want you to try to hear it now. So the, the first line he looked for justice but found bloodshed. It's he looked for mishpat but found mishpach. You hear that? He looked for mishpach, but found mishpach. And in the next one, it says, he looked for zedekah, but he found za'akah. You hear the poetry there? These words are very tightly related to each other as sounds. Now also, the word mishpat and the word zedek are essential words for the Old Testament's understanding of what good is. If you've been around long enough, you've heard me talk about Proverbs verses 1, verses 2 through 7. Now I think it's a dictionary for the Old Testament. It's got some crazy thoughts, but but I really do believe that. And mishpat and zedek are key words right there in Proverbs 1, verse 3, with one other word, meshirim. And together they make up a way of describing everything that is true. So mishpat, judgment, it means to have something that is measured right. Yeah. So think of like a 12-inch ruler. If you take a 12-inch ruler and you use it to measure something, and you're all ready to make your cut, but the ruler is not actually 12 inches. It's 12 inches and one-eighth of an inch. Well, how how accurate is your cut going to be? Well, it's not going to be accurate at all because it was measured poorly. Now, that word accurate, that's what the Zedek word is, righteousness. So you have, you have judgment, which is measurement. You have righteousness, which is accuracy, and they go together right? And so when you're working on building something anywhere, you want to have good measurement so that it's accurate. And at the end of the day, you also want to have it balanced. That's what that other word from Proverbs is about. But so God is looking for good measurements and he's looking for accuracy, but instead he's finding bloodshed. Whoa. And instead he's finding people screaming in pain and terror. that's a long way from good measurement and accuracy And, and by the way this is pretty important too the good measurement and accuracy has a lot to do with the coinage this is language about how the finances are handled so good measurement means that when you take your, your little weight and you put it on the scale to find out if the silver and gold in the coin is actually silver and gold and not dross, well, you shift the weight, you make the weight wrong so that you can tell them that you pull them one over, you get more gold out of it that way. That's how inflation used to work, okay? Um, well, this is at the root of what any corrupt society is. And it isn't as though this is just about society. The fact is this is the church as a society now doing this corruption. That having all the promises of God in their life and around them, and in fact the armies of God fighting for them, has not stopped them from trying to cheat their neighbors. And ignoring the cries of those who are weak and impoverished, and ignoring those who are ignorant and simple, letting the fool run his way rather than try to stop him from doing the foolish thing. He looked for them to be a light on a hill. They were darkness instead. He looked for them to be salt of the earth. Instead, they lost their taste. And so what's he going to do, right? What's he going to do? Now, if you want to have this be even more narrow, we're not going to go through all this section, but the, the following section, he starts to directly say, like, what are you actually doing? Okay, let's just look at verse eight then. We didn't have it read before, but woe to those who join house to house. And add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell in the midst of the land alone. Woe to those who join house to house. Woe to those who try to get more and more until the poor have nowhere to dwell. One man, lots of land. Aren't I proud of myself now? Now, I'm not saying any of you out here are actually doing that. Although I am saying that all of you out here live in a country where that's kind of a game isn't it? Huh? Isn't buying and selling land the game here in America? Isn't that how you make it? And if you're really going to be wealthy, what are you going to do? You're going to buy farmland and not even farm on huh? it. No, Bill Gates, is big, big game right now for him. Right? It's all about joining house to house. It's all about having as much as you can. It's about gaining control so you can act as if you are God to yourself. And whenever any individual does that, whenever any family does that, whenever any town does that, whenever any nation does that, when a congregation would do such a thing, all we've done is we've rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we should not expect Jesus Christ to answer any prayers. And we should see in that a reflection of what the entire history of mankind has been which is that we have rejected Jesus Christ from the start and been cast into a veil of tears, and that many of us here, seeing all the pain and suffering, think the answer is to make sure we get them suffering so we don't have to. And Jesus is saying that, well, that's not my church. That's not my kingdom. That's not what I'm saving you for. I'm not saving you so you can have more now. I'm saving you for mansions that are to come. You're going to lose now, you're going to have tribulation now, you're going to suffer now. you're going to realize that now is unrighteous wealth. So use that righteous wealth excuse me, use that unrighteous wealth for the buying of heavenly habitations for your friends. Right? Learn to see that each human being is far more valuable than any other stuff. How hard is that in this time of year when you, you go to the store and you walk down the aisle and all it is is more stuff? More and more stuff to buy this year and in three years go into trash, you can buy more of it. Well, they tell you that it's about the environment, yet they don't stop making the fossil fuels into plastic, do they now? I'm not saying, you know, that's the issue here. The whole issue, again, is a lack of awareness, a lack of wisdom, a lack of insight, which has been given to you now in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a Holy Spirit that has enlivened you to see differently than the world, and that this is going to be enhanced ever and more by your attendance to what the Bible says. So even looking at a text with as little gospel, have you seen gospel in the text? There's no gospel in this text. It's, it's all a bunch of crushing law right now. Even here, it shouldn't make you depressed. It should kind of make you a little bit inspired. Like, oh, yeah, let's, let's fight back. Yeah, let, let's, let's not be like that. Yeah, that's what we want out of this here, yeah? All the more than as we remember that this is about the big picture of the fall out of paradise, the walking through the valley of the shadow of death toward the fiery hell, which we're not going to. We're walking toward it, but not really. As soon as we get to the verge of hell, we're going to be swept off our feet and raptured up into the body of Jesus, yeah? But that doesn't mean that that hell isn't there and the rest of the planet isn't going there and you can't see it happening all around you. Our last two verses we heard read this morning, let's look at those, verse 24 and 25. Again, this is the picture of hell happening to the vineyard, right? As the tongue of fire devours the stubble, as dry grass sinks down into flame, right? You've kindled a fire in your backyard at some point. You know how fast the the stubble and the dry grass goes up. It doesn't last very long. A little cardboard to start the fire doesn't even finish burning. It flies away. Uh, So, Uh, As that, right, as fast as that goes, so their root will be as rotten as their blossom go up like dust. Yes, Jerusalem destroyed by Babylon. Yes, Jerusalem destroyed by Rome. But most importantly, the world, the devil and his angels cast into the lake on the last day. It will go up like dust. For why? They have rejected the Torah, the law, the Torah of Jesus. They've rejected, what does that mean? The next word. They despise the word of the Holy One in Israel. Why do people go to hell? Because God says, I don't want you to go there, and they go, no, you don't. God says, I'm saving you from it. No, you aren't, but that's why people go to hell. They don't want the Word of God. Therefore, verse 25, the anger of Jesus, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and he struck them. The mountains quaked, Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. What a horrible image! For all his anger has not turned all this. His anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still for his destruction of Jerusalem twice. They left bodies and corpses lying in the streets. His wrath against mankind has not been quenched, and he still is bringing the fires of hell upon all of us someday. Now, for his destruction of the temple of Jesus Christ. His wrath is quenched. His hand has turned away. His hand, which was reached out to destroy, has become the hands pierced and nailed to save you. So you stand at a precipice today. And and don't think I'm talking about you making a decision for Jesus. You're a Christian. You're already in Jesus. But you stand at a precipice every single morning. Do I remember this? Enlivened by the Holy Spirit, will I choose this today with the Spirit pushing me to it? And that is what Advent, early Advent, is all about that we would hear again the voice of John crying out in the wilderness, wake up, don't forget where you are. I know it's nice to be a Christian and I know that currently the standard of living you have is better than it was 200 years ago, but don't let it deceive you. Man has not changed. And all the attempts to build a tower of Babel and a new Sodom and Gomorrah are gonna have the same end results that they've had before. So don't put your hope there. Put your hope where you know it is surely founded. In the risen body and blood of Jesus that you eat and drink for the forgiveness of sins. And the knowledge of the word of God clearly written once and for all in the scriptures. Which is in your hands. A sword of living fire in your hands for you to take home. You open up, you look at it again, you remember what it says. And in that way, when you look around, you will not be blind and foolish like the masses who are running headlong into the destruction of the vineyard. But you can, as as Jesus says, you can come out of her, my people. Not that you would leave the world, but that you would stand with head lifted high and not wallow in the muck with all the rest who have no hope. In the name of Jesus.